Okay, Giri, you want to get the ball rolling? Okay, sure. So everyone, welcome to the Ambrose Podcast. We are three bros located all across the world. We, uh, we're going to talk about the coronavirus today, specifically about the Delta variant. We have our in-house medical expert, Dr. Ramanathan, uh, the, the senior most brother. And um, so both Malay and I have a lot of questions about this new Delta variant, uh, what's going on, what's on the horizon. So we're going to pepper him with all the questions and he's going to help us uh, make sense of this. So Malay, are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ramu, are you ready? Yep. Let's go. Okay. Okay, so the last time I studied anything about viruses was back in high school, and that was almost 10 years back. So let's start with a very basic question. What in the world is a coronavirus? Virus? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, viruses have been around us for a very long time. Um, so coronaviruses come in different flavors. So these are viruses uh, which are... Basically, they get their name because the outside of the virus um, is studded with uh, a protein that gives the image of, a, you know, a corona, which means crown. So it's studded. Mm-hmm. So the spike protein, which is studded around the coronavirus, basically gives a whole um, view of like a crown. And so that's why it gets its name coronavirus. And it most of the time it causes upper respiratory infections. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, the first dangerous one that basically arose was SARS in 2003. I'm not sure if you guys are aware. I mean, you probably were. Um, that was in like 2003 or so. And in Singapore, that was a big deal. A lot of healthcare workers died. Um, but it wasn't too bad because when the virus hit, it really caused severe disease in a few people. But they didn't transmit it as much. And so... Um, it kind of blew over pretty fast and it wasn't such a worldwide issue as well. There were a couple of countries affected, Hong Kong, of course, China, um, Canada, Singapore, but it wasn't that much of a major problem as we are experiencing right now. Um, But basically SARS-CoV-2, which is sort of the second coming of coronavirus, um, that seems to have a lot bigger impact because it's sort of a Goldilocks scenario where it basically transmits really well and it actually causes severe disease. Um, but there are also more benign coronaviruses, I would call it, where they cause the, the usual flu. So flu can be caused by viruses as well. And most of the time it's like um, coronaviruses that cause those flu viruses are not that dangerous. Um, and they have come up every flu season about 20 percent or so of um you know flus are actually caused by coronaviruses so um there's you know a a spectrum of coronaviruses and um we have been seeing more and more of this um dangerous versions of it so like i said sars that the first one was around 2003 and then in between sars-cov-2 and sars there was another version which arose out of apparently camels. And um, basically that was the Middle East respiratory virus. 
And so that was also a coronavirus that also had a pretty um, bad fatality, but it wasn't as transmissible, it appears. So, um, so yeah, here we are with uh, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, the latest version of coronavirus, which has really been devastating all over the world. So what determines how virulent a coronavirus is? You talked about how MERS wasn't as transmissible. You talked about how SARS was lethal but not transmissible. So what determines the the transmissibility of of a virus? Yeah, I mean, if you want to unpack that, basically you're asking two questions, which is, mm-hmm. you know, really great, especially regarding respiratory viruses. Um, there's two components, like you said, right? One is transmissibility, and the other one is virulence. So let's try to look at each separately. Transmissible basically means that um, they're spread easily, right? So how easy is it to spread from person A who's infected to person B who's not infected? Um, of course, there are multiple factors, but the basic ones is the virus itself, right? So how well the virus um, is able to bind to the um, human cell. So like I said, most of these are you know, thought to arise from bats. So they're adapted to bats, but occasionally they pick up um, mutations. And so like, uh, you know, when we started off, we talked about the corona and the corona basically is caused by these spike proteins. And so spike is like the lock and key system to enter the human cell. So the spike is the key and the uh, receptor on the human um, cell is called ACE2. And so that lock and key is what enables these viruses to get in. And so if your um, key is very well fit in the sense of the spike has very good mutations and it mm-hmm. interacts or it binds um, your lock well in this case is two then it's much easier to get entry so that's one viral factor mm-hmm. um, and then the other factor is how well the virus can replicate within the human cell so if it's well adapted it can start making lots of copies so the more copies it makes um, you know the higher the chance that it's going to be transmissible and the third thing is how is it spread right i mean some certain viruses like for example ebola they're really virulent you know um, but they are spread through like bodily secretion. So it's very, you know, it's not as much of a high R0 or like transmissibility rate. But in the case of um, coronaviruses, they start to spread by, um, you know, uh, respiratory uh, like air drops, mm. you know, spread through the air. And within the air, there are, you know, multiple ways of looking at it. But basic concept is to spread through the air, like, Anything you exhale out, anything you breathe out, um, if you're infected, you can basically have viral particles there. And anybody who breathes that in, um, you know, is going to get it. Um, So that's how it's spread. So transmissibility is very high. Um, The other factor is virulence. So, you know, like I talked about earlier, certain seasonal coronaviruses, they're not that bad. I mean, people get over it pretty well. Um, they don't suffer a lot of respiratory distress or, you know, other massive um, consequences. Um, but SARS-CoV-2 is really debilitating, right? I mean, a lot of people end up with severe disease. And so it's, it's really, you know, very hard to wrap, right? How are these both coronaviruses, you know, aren't coronaviruses just benign? No, 
Um, it really depends on what the um, sort of internal software code is, which is the genetic code, and that codes for a lot of enzymes. And so in this case, what happens is that SARS-CoV-2 just basically super effective at um, replicating itself and also causing damage to the um, host cell, in this case, the human cell, and also eliciting a very strong immune response. And so, you know, your own body can overcompensate and at times that's what actually causes very severe disease is when your body gets into overdrive and um, basically those are the factors that lead to um, virulence so there's viral factors depending on what the viral genome is and how it's encoded and the other factor is how the human responds so certain people are more vulnerable because of certain uh, genetic mutations or you know um immunodeficiencies they have, they are just more vulnerable. And so they get the disease a lot worse. Um, so throughout this course of the um, pandemic, we have noticed that some people particularly are not doing very well. Um, for example, people who don't have interferon response or auto... Could you say that again? What kind of response? Sort of the alarm signals of our body. And if you don't have those alarm signals, you tend to do worse, but we're still trying to figure out, you know, who is at higher risk and who is not. But nonetheless, the virus is just bad for everyone. But some people, of course, have it really bad. And so we're still trying to figure out what um, these factors are. So I've got a just a technical clarification uh, about the syntax. Virulence isn't transmissibility, right? Well, virulence is about how lethal the virus is. Yeah, but I would say it's, is about you know, that I'll, I'll correct you on that. It's virulence. I mean, um, virulence. Yep, virulence is basically defined by you know how um, damaging the virus is to the host. In this case, the human. Okay, so virulence is how lethal it is. Uh, transmissibility is how. Yeah, it's the not value. How how quickly does it spread? Exactly. And um, so that brings us to the next question. You know, mm. we have really good, um, you know, vaccines against the ancestral strain, the one that was originally identified in Wuhan. And um, what has really been popping up all over the world as the virus has spread is mutations, right? So mutations are basically small changes in the genetic code of the virus. And those basically change the flavor of the virus. And I mean, mutations are what drive these changes. And so we have all these variants of concern as they are called right now. And the WHO has called these variants right now, alpha um, and so on. And the most recent version is called um, Delta variant. And that was first identified in India. And it seemed to coincide with a very big spike in cases as well as, you know, um, severe you know stress to the medical system there and so i think that's a very very interesting question so what is this delta variant and you know how are we going to think about you know going ahead like what do we need to do you know with this variance um so delta variant basically has mutations on the spike protein and that basically seems to make it easier to bind to the ACE2 um, protein. So it enhances two things. One, it enhances the transmissibility. So people have shown, um, you know, like studies have shown that 
Delta is definitely more transmissible than the Alpha variant, which is first identified in UK, which in itself is more transmissible than the original Wuhan variant, I mean the Wuhan strain. So the virus seems to be adapting better and better to bind to our human protein. So um, it's definitely more transmissible. And on top of that, it also seems to be more um, virulent because it is able to bind better. There's a higher inoculum, uh, meaning there's a higher level of viral load. It seems to basically cause a more severe disease. And so that you know, seems to kind of gel with what was going on in India, where they did pretty well with the initial wave. You know, later on, they had this Delta variant and it caused tremendous increase in death um, and mortality and morbidity around the country. So um, we're seeing that in other parts of the world as well. So, um, you know, in the UK, most of the new cases have been the Delta variant. And uh, even in Israel, which has a very high rate of vaccination, they are seeing an uptick in um, Delta variant. And that seems to also affect children, um, because particularly because they are not vaccinated um, as well. So it seems to be a very, very um, transmissible and virulent variant. I mean, I just have a question in regards to the, the increasing number of variants, right? Because... With the increases in number of variants, you say it, you just said that you know they mutate and all that. But can the current slew of tests that we have, the PCR swab test and all that, can they test the, I mean, the presence of these mutations or how does it work from there on? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. So um, the PCRs right now, most of them are targeted against the nucleocapsid um, protein, so it's another part of the genome. And so those nucleocapsid proteins are pretty stable, so they're not picking up as many mutations. Um, whereas the spike is under a lot of uh, sort of evolutionary stress, right? So um, the spike is what is being targeted by treatments, by vaccines. And so the spike yeah. is always trying to move, like it's always under sort of a selection pressure. So it's mutating all the time. Whereas in the nucleocapsid, it seems to be more stable. So your PCR test will always be able to, I mean, not always, what I mean is, they're very likely to pick up our infection. Yeah, exactly. They will be able to identify your um, infection, whether you are infected with SARS-CoV-2 or not, regardless of what the variant is, uh, you know, whether it's Delta, Alpha, you know, Gamma, whatever, you know, New Greek alphabet you're going to throw at it, it's going to be pretty good at picking that up. But your next question is, how are we going to, like you said, you know, we are picking up a lot of these mutations. Um mm-hmm. So how are we going to identify that? And the answer to that is slightly different. That involves genome sequencing. So you have to sequence, um, you know, at least parts of the genome. So that is a more complicated test. It's more expensive. And you have to have some expertise in molecular um, techniques to do that. Um, And the UK is one of the leading lights in it. So a lot of um, patients who end up with SARS-CoV-2 do get their... um, viruses genome sequence in the UK. I, I'm not sure what percentage, probably in the range of like, I don't know, at least 5% of people who are infected, they get genome sequence. Is it, Whereas is it other... called the serology yeah, test? Is that is that what's called? Serology? No, no. Serology, serology is different. Um, this is genome sequencing. Okay. And that basically enables you to identify the letters that make up the virus code. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so by doing that, you can figure out, okay, are there any new mutations in that spike? Um, and you can compare that against, you know, existing sequences on an online database. So you can identify new um, changes in the spike protein. And so that's how you're going to be able to pick up new variants. And that, that's a great question. You're picking up mutations all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, that's important to track. So th right. there needs to be more resources put in to enable countries around the world to at least sequence a fraction of their infected cases so the world can better be informed, you know, what is going on in terms of new variants. So is there any way where a patient can have multiple variants in his body? Oh, excellent, excellent question. This is a really great question. So, yeah, if you think about it, it's totally possible, right? I mean, like, viruses, once they come in, they have their original sequence, mm -hmm. and um, they mutate, right? Every time they copy, that's when the mutations happen, because they're simple errors. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, those errors are going to be deleterious, meaning they're not going to be helpful to the virus, so they die off. But that's fine. The viruses don't care, right? They don't have a I mean, they lose a few, that's fine. They, they also make errors which are um, basically helpful to them. And once they find those, they are more adapted, so they multiply more. So it doesn't matter that along the way they lose a few. And they, you know, when they copy them, they accumulate these new um, mutations. And so some of them are going to be helpful. And those helpful ones are going to propagate, meaning they're going to expand out. And so within a human host, yeah, every time they're infected, every time a human is infected, there will be variants within the same um, uh, viral pool. So in normal humans, it's kind of unlikely to find variants within uh, their um, virus load. So meaning if a normal person is infected, it's very unlikely that you'll find variant A, B, C, D, and so on. But what they have shown so far is um, patients who are immunocompromised and who have been infected for very long periods of time, mm -hmm. they tend to show a lot of variants. So if you sequence a patient who is immunocompromised, who has been battling SARS-CoV-2 for 70 days or 80 days, you see that you know they, they don't have one SARS-CoV-2 um, virus. They have multiple different variants. So right. immunocompromised patients... Unfortunately, they tend to do poorly, and they also seem to um, have multiple versions of the virus. And so a lot of variants are thought to have arisen from patients who have battled SARS-CoV-2 for a long time. And so mm -hmm. um, immunocompromised patients are definitely uh, a, very vulnerable, a very vulnerable group. And on top of that, they also seem to have um, potential risk of developing multiple variants. Right. I, I don't know if you guys saw the news, but I think they just released that one guy in the UK had COVID for like 10 months. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's crazy. I'm pretty sure he, he had multiple variants, probably. Yes, right? I Which think is... that, that would be a very safe assumption. To, I mean, that he's very likely to have multiple variants. And so um, this is something we need to be very aware of, right? I mean, among us, there's a lot of patients who are immunocompromised, right? So mm -hmm. in the U.S., uh, 1 in 25 are immunocompromised in some way or another, either due to some sort of cancer treatment or autoimmune condition uh, or primary immunodeficiency, meaning that they have some sort of primary defect in their immune system. And so, 
you know, there are a lot of people who are immunocompromised. So we need to be aware um, that there is uh, these people in our midst, they are at higher risk. So um, we need to try and reduce the risk for them. And the best way is still vaccination. So I think if we can vaccinate as much population as possible, um, you know, I think that will create the sort of herd immunity, which reduces the risk of transmission to vulnerable populations like the immunocompromised. And in doing so, it also protects us because, you know, I think if anything that has come out through this pandemic is that you're only safe when everyone is safe. So if we can mm -hmm. protect the immunocompromised and prevent new variants as well, then um, we are a bet, bet much better chance of um, sort of slowly ending this um, whole tremendously horrible <laughs> pandemic, which has, you know, really thrown our lives apart. All right. I have a question. I have a question about this new Delta variant and the efficacy of vaccines. We hear stories about uh, breakthrough infections, breakthrough infections in Israel and Singapore, and these are countries where the vaccination rates are really high. So, what's going on here? Is the vaccine still effective against the Delta variant, or is it not? You know, that's sort of the million dollar question. Um, that's a really good question. Um, and we, to be honest, I don't think we have the full answer yet. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that Delta variant and the vaccine, this is sort of a new encounter. Um, you know, we still don't have very good evidence in terms of how well protected we are. And there has been some reports coming out. So in the UK, I think they a recent study came out saying the, um, I think the mRNA vaccines, they gave about 88% protection against um, SARS-CoV-2 Delta variant compared to about 95% for the ancestral um, variant from Wuhan. I mean, not the variant, the, the ancestral Wuhan um, strain. So um, there is definitely a decrease in protection. That's without question. The question right now is, how well, um, you know, how much of a drop that is and how impactful that it is going to be. So again, you know, we're still at the early stages of trying to discover what is going on. Um, it does appear that even though um, people who are vaccinated do come down with a Delta variant, they might not experience that much of symptoms. That mm -hmm. seems to be the case somewhat. But again, I, I, I think we're still too early. We can't tell yet. Um, and so I think there's two things here. One is the, um, the viral protection, you know, from the vaccine itself. And the other thing which we also have to think about is the decay in the viral protection. Is there going to be a, a drop in the viral protection as time goes on? You know, that's another question which needs to be answered. So it's a very, it's a big moving question. Because um, as I said earlier, Delta variant seems to produce a lot higher viral load, right? So you got to fight more of the virus. So if mm. your immune system is, I mean, sorry, if your vaccine response is lower and um, your immune response is not going to be as strong um, and your viral load is higher, so what does that mean? It means potentially you might be more susceptible, but again, um, we still don't have a definitive answer, but yes, 
it does raise concern. And the WHO, I think, has come about with some recommendations saying that, listen, Delta is out there. And so if you're already vaccinated, just don't throw your mask away, still mask up. Um, so that's a recommendation from the WHO. But this is really tricky, right? I mean, in the U.S., people have already been told, like, if you're vaccinated, yeah. um, you can go around without mask. And there's, of course, a lot of pandemic fatigue. Um, companies are basically using vaccine status to ask people to come back or they're asking mandatory um, proof of vaccines. And so everyone is eager to start back life normal. And, you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen. I mean, is the protection offered by the existing vaccination sufficient going forward, especially as we know that the Delta variant is already in circulating around and it's not going to be eliminated right now. So it's, it's a very hard question, you know. So I think time will tell, but based on logic, it appears that A, vaccination does definitely protect against variants. B, the protection might be less. And C, we just don't know how it does with time. Like the time component is something we just don't know. So that's where I think the whole discussion of whether we need a booster and if we need a booster, what should that vaccine be um, designed against, right? So right now, the sequence we attack is the original Wuhan uh, sequence, right? Mm-hmm. So do we need to change that to include the Delta or, you know, what 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 should that sequence be? So we don't have um, evidence on, on that front as well. So it's a great question. We just still are going to figure it out. But what I would, you know say as a sort of a public health message is you know please get vaccinated a and even if you're vaccinated just try to do your level best to protect yourself your family and the community by you know still as much as possible trying to reduce um uh crowded events and also if you can wear a mask as well because mask still works right it at the end of the day this virus is spread through the air so if you can block that using cloth masks and surgical masks you know you should still do it and the faster you do that i mean the more you do that the better it is for you yourself your community and the broader fight against COVID. the consensus in the u.s has sort of shifted you know uh there's pandemic fatigue kicking, kicking in and people feel that it's time to ditch the mask and resume normal life. Uh, but as you highlighted, the World Health Organization has sort of changed its guidelines and it's now encouraging vaccinated folks to wear a mask as well. So do you think the, that the that public sentiments might shift over the next month or so as we see more breakthrough infections and, and more cases of the Delta variant in the u.s um you know this is this is a hard question as well i think it it really depends on the number of cases that we see so we okay so just to unpack that a bit like we definitely see vaccine hesitancy in the u.s the u.s is sort of you know if you want to call it swimming in vaccines they have so much supply and anybody who wants it can get it right um but there's still a large fraction of the population which is, which is sort of resistant, you know, to taking vaccines. And so it's sort of a pretty big bifurcation in society. There's, there's one group that 
of course, is vaccinated already. And there's another group which almost certainly looks like they won't get vaccinated. And so that's the big risk, right? So Delta is really risky, particularly for unvaccinated people. So over the next month or so, I think we will see, you know, a spike in cases, particularly among the unvaccinated for sure. Um, and how that will translate. If, if the unvaccinated end up having a lot of Delta virus, then naturally you're also going to hear more and more about people with vaccines who are vaccinated who will unfortunately also get the virus. So it's a really difficult dynamic. And, you know, from the virus standpoint of view, like it's pretty near certain that it's going to spread um, and we will see more of it. That's pretty certain. But what is difficult to know is whether there will be a shift in the sentiment. It really depends on the velocity and the number of cases. So I think it's, again, going to be like a two-nation kind of thing, which I think other people have talked about, where, you know, there are communities like, let's say, in California, you know, Palo Alto and so on, where the vaccination rate is super high, right? I mean, like probably talking about 80, whatever, 80% or so, maybe even higher. And then there are parts of the country, especially in the south, uh, where the vaccines are not well received. And that's where you're going to see a huge spike and populations are going to be affected there. But will that affect? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there'll be spikes in parts of the country, but might not see that much of a dramatic impact in the local communities where vaccination rates are already high um, because there's sort of like the herd immunity concept, right? So um, I don't know because there's also a huge... Um, sort of push for a hot back summer. I'm sure you've heard of that. Right. Where, you know, everybody wants to throw their mask and go back to partying or whatnot. Um, so it's hard to say. There's the public sentiment is, is a question we can't really tell um, particularly well. And that really depends on which side of the aisle you fall on, like vaccines versus, um, you know, unvaccinated group. You're already seeing that in Missouri. I think there's a huge spike in cases and it predominantly is appearing to be in unvaccinated people. But do you guys think that that might make the U.S. government kind of U-turn on the whole don't wear your mask when you're outside? Or is that going to stay? Yeah, I think this is, again, another political, you know, question. Because from a a medical standpoint... Yeah, from a medical standpoint, it just appears better to be safe than sorry, right? I mean, yeah, you know, we are, our whole premise is do no harm. And of course, the, I, I mean, any if you ask anyone, pull them aside and ask like, hey, should you wear a mask even if you're vaccinated because of these new variants? I would say 90% of doctors would say, you know, why not? It's a good idea. It's not too much to ask. Mm-hmm. But we know that's not how the society works, right? I mean, people are tired. I get that, you know, everyone is tired. Everyone, you know, is just sick of this whole thing. So it's, you have to balance everything. You have to balance the science. You also have to balance people because at the end of the day, society concerns matter too, you know? So um, I think it's a very tricky balance and I, I don't envy them at all. But yeah, I think it, at a personal level, I think it's people can make those calls as well. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you, you can do a lot, you know. And so I would say, yeah, wear a mask still if you're vaccinated. I think that's the WHO's guideline, and I think it makes a lot of sense. But at a society right. level, um, 
or at a federal level or state level, I mean, that's a political question. And I think people are going to struggle with that. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you go about doing that? I I actually want to get your opinions on, I mean, for both from the both of you, just to get to know, like, what are your thoughts on naming the variants as, as Greek alphabets, right? Who I think just released it about a while back. What what are your thoughts? No, okay. First of all, I think that's an excellent idea because otherwise you're going to get tainted. Uh-huh. You know, there's the UK variant, the South Africa variant. It doesn't mean anything, right? At the end of the day, um, it just was sequenced there and identified there and maybe caused a spike in cases there, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want countries to feel like, you know, by coming up with a new sequence, they will be, you know, always named the Vietnam variant or some other, you know, new country variant. That yeah. is just very, um, uh, you know, not, not, not nice, right? I mean, just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't incentivize disclosure and transparency. Right, exactly. So by giving it neutral letters, I think it just makes it, it, it kind of washes away the stigma of all this. Um, yeah. So I think that that really helps. And yeah. um, so I think that's, that's the right strategy. I wish they had done that earlier. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, they did have a naming system. Like the UK one was called B.1.1.7, which yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a mouthful. And so I think calling it alpha and so on makes a lot more sense. Right. So, I, I want to sort of zoom out for a moment and discuss this whole mRNA vaccine technology that has sort of come to the fore because of this. I know, Ramu, you have done a lot of research on mRNA, uh, just mRNA in general. So could you share a little bit more about this whole mRNA vaccine technology? What's so exciting about it? And, and what are some of the possible things that could come out of this? Well, I would say a lot of things. Okay, <laughs> good things. Deal, okay. Right? Maybe we should talk about it another time. But, okay. You know, I think um, like mRNAs have been tremendously important for our fight against COVID. And um, this technology is not new. I mean, um, the person who, you know, did a lot of work, uh, who is a Hungarian immigrant scientist, Carolyn Kariko, I believe, um, you know, she started this work almost 20 years back or, or more. Um, so this has really been the time for mRNA to shine it's um, rays of hope <laughs> to speak. And so, um, yeah, it's a tremendously exciting field, especially for infectious disease and potentially also cancer. I think these are the two main um, areas where mRNA vaccines could be very helpful. And, you know, it is this, this pandemic is really um, kind of exposed all of us to the potential and so there's a lot more uh, venture capital money there's a lot more energy there's a lot more science happening in that space so stay tuned i think that's a very exciting field and, and so it's... we'll discuss it in another episode then right we did a pretty good discussion about coronavirus delta and the response all right this was good that was great yep yeah. Okay. Uh, I right. think this was good. Let's let's wrap up this inaugural episode and then uh, and then let's let's see what's next. Cool. All right, man. Thank you guys. All right. Thank you guys. Okay. Take thank care. you. Take care. Bye.